0: You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha, thank you for being with us. This week's episode is a conversation I had with composer, techno producer, and environmental activist, Chris Corder.
1: It is possible still for music and art to be political and to uh, change society, and I want that. I just think that the electronic music industry has not in general been holding up its end of that bargain.
0: Chris founded the controversial Church of Euthanasia in the 90s, an anti-natalist movement that obliges its members to take a lifetime vow of non-procreation in a move towards environmental sustainability. Her techno track, Save the Planet, Kill Yourself, was a worldwide hit, reaching the shores of Ibiza and the crates of Carl Cox, amongst other superstar DJs. Chris Korda is now ready to share a new project. An LP titled Apologize to the Future, written in complex polymeter with a robot choir delivering the central theme that future generations, should they exist, will bitterly resent us for leaving them with a wrecked planet. Chris wanted to set out a few things about her research around this new record and the emotional consequences of looking into the state of our environment right from the start of our chat. So you'll hear from her first and then the full interview.
1: This album, Apologize to the Future, cost me a lot. Emotionally. You understand? Emotionally. Uh, I still have a hard time listening to it. It upsets me. And that's because it's intended to. uh, And I guess it's fair to say that it's supposed to hurt. If it doesn't hurt, something's wrong. And so i feel that that's the elephant in the room that this is a terrifying thing and and to have even thought about these issues even in a relatively trivial way would already be traumatic but to have explored them and visualized them in such excruciating detail is awful it was a long process and unpleasant and it culminates or or kind of is the is, is the culmination of decades and decades of research and study, and of course, it synthesizes all of the Church of Euthanasia and everything that went into that. You could say that more than 30 years of my life is, is embedded in this album. And so I feel that, that it's, um, it's important to talk about that, to talk about what it means to have to say something like this in the public sphere after all this time, after all the water that's gone under this bridge you know it, it's arguable that this is the first electronic music album ever made entirely about climate change and human extinction and all the rest of it intergenerational injustice i mean th- these are really major themes in our society at the moment th- these are the essential themes of the 21st century and so it's a it's a, it's a, as much a political development as it is an artistic one
0: do you remember a moment where you became passionate about the environment like was there a key memory that stands out to you or an an initial moment of realization about how much humans are damaging the earth
1: sure sure I read God's junkyard my mother had it she was quite an environmentalist and um, very passionate about it and so she had a lot of books on her bookshelf that would have been interesting Mm. for a child to read and some of them were easy. I mean, God's Junkyard is a picture book. It's just photographs. It's uh, photographs of primarily billboards and um, other littering of, of the landscape, if we want to put it that way. It's hard to imagine, but there was a time when uh, there weren't laws against littering. And so I grew up as a child in a world where littering was the norm. And it was, it was quite vile. People just threw their trash out the windows of their cars. It was a long journey from being a five year old or whatever I was when I first encountered my mother's environmental books to founding the Church of Euthanasia in 1992. A lot of stuff happened during those years that's not relevant or that's, you know, is only relevant if we were writing my autobi- autobiography. <laughs> but somewhere during that time, I. Grasp something deep that perhaps you'd have to, you know, it helps to grow up in New York City to grasp, which is <laughs> that the world was overpopulated. This was pretty obvious to me. And that uh, over, overpopulation and overconsumption were having massive effects on not only on the environment, meaning non, the non human world, but on human beings. Mm. You can't stand in Grand Central Station and not get that. I mean, it was years and years later when I saw uh, Godfrey Reggio's famous film, *Koyaanisqatsi*, Katsi. And of course, the, one of the highlights of *Koyaanisqatsi* Katsi is the uh, stop motion or uh, speeded up photography of rush hour commuters pouring through the escalators of Grand Central Station, intercut with sausage, going to a sausage machine. And the, of course, the application is pretty obvious, <laughs> right? that humans are meat in the machine, uh, it's a wonderful film, and it, uh, it's a very glum film, actually. It, it, uh, sh- its ultimate metaphor for human civilization is uh, a rocket, a giant rocket uh, taking off, and or slowly taking off. It takes a long time to get a rocket in the air, actually. <laughs> and once it gets in the air, it's very powerful, but it shows the trajectory, the arc of the rocket, uh, and it's very impressive and powerful, and then the rocket explodes. Uh, I feel bad, I'm spoiling the ending, but it, most people have seen it by now, but it's, uh, I, I feel it's actually a pretty apt metaphor.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, and so Godfrey Reggio had a point. But I grasped all that at a very early age. I saw that humanity was overwhelming Earth, and that that was bad strategy, and that wasn't going to work out. I mean, by the time I was a teenager, I had already grasped that. And so the seeds of the church between Asia go all the way back to my childhood. Mm. I, I, don't, I think most people who grew up in the 1970s probably could dimly grasp that something was going terribly wrong. Remember, it, 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 the, the uh, environmental protection movement began in 1971. Right. I was just a child. Right. But before that, there was no environmental protection, really. Before that, uh, a friend who who taught me about all this Uh, before that was referred to in America as the go-go years, like the post-war period, post Second World War. Those were the go-go years where uh, if you wanted to build a factory or something, uh, there were so many towns that just kind of sprang into existence when the interstate highway system was built in America. And so you would just go driving out to these exits that were, there was basically almost no there there. They had all been farmland a few years before. Next thing you know, suburbs are exploding and it all kind of looks a little bit like that film, The Stepford Wives. And uh, you would just drive up, drive down there you in your Cadillac and go to city hall and bring the mayor a suitcase full of money and he'd hand you whatever building permits you want. I don't care, whatever, whatever you want to do, great, build it. And uh, nobody would check to see what you were dumping in the sewers. And uh, that had terrible consequences. It took years, decades, decades, before we got, before we got that under control. Mm. The, the industrial pollution exploded in the 1960s, and, and even in starting in the 50s. Actually, a lot of the damage was done in the late 50s when the uh, plastics industry really got underway. Uh, people were pouring the most ghastly things right into the sewers, and in many cases, melting the sewers. I worked in a company uh, in Boston where that actually happened. We were sited on top of an enormous toxic waste site that had resulted from the fact that all the previous tenants of that industrial park were circuit fabs, you know what those are? That's where they make circuit boards. Okay. one of the most toxic industries in the world. And uh, I had an eyewitness to that who said that uh, there was, they, in the, one of the buildings, there was a hole in the floor, a big square hole in the floor. And that's where they poured all the used solvents. So just try and scale that, imagine that in your head, multiply that times millions of people and thousands and thousands of corporations all across America, especially in Massachusetts, where I'm from, and you can begin to understand why we needed the Environmental Protection Agency. By the time it started, we had rivers on fire and stuff like this, and I, so I, you know, it was no joke. We, was, we had really made a mess. So, you know, I, I think that all of that was part of the answer to your question, right? That's, that's how I got started down this road. Mm.
0: And tell me about founding the church.
1: The God honest truth is it came to me in a dream, okay? That stuff happens. It's not only in fiction. It worked for Salvador Dali, and it can work for me. You know, it came to me in a dream. "Save the planet, kill yourself" came to me in a, in a dream or a trance or whatever we want to call it. And so, "Save the planet, kill yourself" was the foundation of the church. It's the gift that keeps on giving. To the extent that I could be a one-hit wonder, right? That'll be the one. It's still giving today. Just last year, uh, Supreme ripped it off. Yeah. And sold 10,000 T-shirts. Incredible. You know, the only the only actually they ripped off the entire design, not just the slogan, the slogan is, you know, there's no problem there. You can't copyright or you can you can't copyright slogans. Uh, You could maybe trademark them if you had a lot of money and lawyers. But uh, they didn't just take the slogan. They took the whole design, everything. The only thing they changed is they they uh, removed the word euthanasia in the copyright. So instead of saying Church of Euthanasia, it said Church of Supreme. (laughs) Mm. So brazen. I remember talking to my gallerist in Paris about that. I was, I was fuming, I was just ripping, you know? And he's like, eh, let me talk to them. Let me, let me talk to some people, I know what to do. And uh, he did know what to do. He made a few calls and uh, he said, the thing you need to do, don't come in with your guns blazing. He said, they did the same thing to Louis Vuitton, Louis Vuitton lost in court. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, oh, oh dear. Okay, so this is just how they roll, you know? And so uh, he said, what you need to do is you need to send them in a very polite email and make it kind of passive aggressive and whiny. Say something like, I wish we could have met under better circumstances, which is exactly what I did say. It worked really well. Next thing you know, I was on the phone with the creative director of Supreme and he was super apologetic. You know, it's a big company. One hand doesn't always know what the other hand is doing, right? And so like, hey, you know, sorry about that. Our bad, let's, let's see how we can make this right. Well, that's fine. But I mean, the point is, right, that Save the Planet for Yourself is more relevant today than it was in the 90s, Mm. much more. And people get that, Mm. they see it now. Back in the 90s, it seemed absurd.
0: Before we talk about how it was received at the time, would you be able to just lay out the values of the Church of Euthanasia?
1: Well, I mean, it's very easy. There's really only one thing that everybody agrees to. The Church of Euthanasia is committed to voluntary population reduction. We're an anti-natalist church. Joining the church means taking a lifetime vow of non-procreation. And if you do that, you don't have to do anything else for the environment. You get a you get a pass. You get a car, you get out of jail free card for everything else. We don't care what else you do. You don't have everything else is optional. You don't have to be a vegan. We don't care. I mean, it's nice. You get brownie points for that, but the only thing you have to do is not have children. But you have to stick to it. If you change your mind, we kick you out and you can't come back you're excommunicated
0: mm.
1: we only have one rule so we you know we're pretty uh, pretty stubborn about adhering to it yeah the one commandment thou shalt not procreate and that's it it's easy and so it's really kind of a slacker religion and it grew up at a time when that made sense you know at the time when the church of euthanasia started uh, it was still weirdness by high mail you know the zine movement the church of the subgenius we had competition back then and uh Satanism was 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 big punk and post-punk were huge there was a lot of crazy stuff going around in the mail and so we were just one of those things but we managed to differentiate ourselves from the pack pretty quickly and we we had legs we went on I mean once we went on the Jerry Springer show there was no turning back we had the ear of the public and we continued to say stuff that made people shake their heads and think about things differently we didn't just stop with save, save the Planet, yourself.
0: Would you tell me a bit about how the church was received at the time, so in the 90s?
1: Well, with horror. I mean, it's still received with horror. It's, um, you know, it's, it's the last thing people want to hear. Particularly in libertarian countries like the United States, where you know people hate being told what to do, the last thing they want is people telling them uh, how, how, how many children they should have or shaming them for the, for, for for having children. I mean, that's that's um, it's never going to be popular. That wasn't its point. Its point was to draw attention to certain things, to change the conversation. I like to say that we changed the conversation about anti-humanism. We put we helped put anti-humanism on the map. By the time Elizabeth Colbert got around to it, we'd been laying the groundwork for years. Anti-humanism is alive and well today, in part thanks to our efforts. And the essence of anti-humanism is seeing human civilization and human activities and human history from a non-human point of view, and that's what we did. That's a, a thing worth doing, and it wasn't easy, and people hated it, but it needed to be done.
0: So you just mentioned the um, "Save the Planet, Kill Yourself" record. Um, in what way were you using music as a vehicle to like get your ideas out there, and how did you see music kind of helping your cause? Well, there
1: was a lot of luck involved. I mean, I, I was a musician long before the Church of Euthanasia. I've been a musician since I was twelve or twelve years old. I, I um, started with piano. I switched to guitar at fifteen or so, and I played guitar. Seriously, for more than thirty years, I studied jazz under Jerry Bergonzi. I went to, briefly went to the briefly attended the Berklee College of Music, I had composition classes, and uh, university. I mean, I, I I know my stuff, and so I I love music, and that was my first love, actually. If I you know, something you don't in life, you don't typically get to do your first choice very very few people get that there's you know it's nice when you meet someone who got to do the thing that they really really said from the beginning that's what I that's what I love and that's what I want to do that wasn't my case not really I, what I wanted was to be a guitarist well that's tough racket as you probably know uh there's a lot of jazz guitarists in the world it's, not, it's like saying it's a little bit like saying I want to be an Olympic swimmer <laughs> you know? it's like okay well let's see your arms good luck with that uh, so you know i struggled with it and I struggled with it a lot and um, ultimately it didn't work out but in the process I learned a lot about music and developed a deep uh, abiding understanding of harmony and a deep love of, of of improvisation and rhythm and all the rest of it and so that's I would have made music without the Church of euthanasia it's just it was really just, and in fact I had already started making music before the Church of euthanasia was the thing my my first um, music had nothing First recorded music is Demons in My Head. That's not, I mean, it's not really a Church of euthanasia thing. It's an, it's an environmental, what shall we call it? An environmental punishment in D minor. Okay, well, that's what it says on the CD. It's ambient music of some kind or environmental music. And it's interesting and I like it. But um, it's more just that there were a bunch of things all occurring at the same time. At the moment where I first sort of gotten the idea that electronic music could possibly allow me to express myself in a new way that didn't involve practicing scales on the guitar eight hours a day. Around that same time, the Church of Euthanasia was first blossoming, and so it just seemed logical. The things went together. I always said that the Church um, should use every available media, and we we did that we were pretty pretty good that way we got ourselves on TV we got in the newspapers we did radio shows we did actions in the street and we made music we did everything we made merchandise we were full service cult you know and so it just um it just made sense like okay well so I'm making electronic music and I'm figuring this out my first few tracks were just you know techno tracks or whatever but then at, at some point it's like okay well this thing goes with that thing and so it, 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 let's try setting "Save the Planet," "Kill Yourself to Music," and see what happens. And boom! Next thing you know, there goes another year of my life. It took a year actually mm. to make that record. That was a very hard record to make. I mean, it's it was worth it, right? It was my. It's still today probably my single biggest hit, and it's what got me on Gigolo, Just that track by itself. What happened exactly was uh, DJ uh, DJ Hell brought it back from a record shop in New York, and. Uh, His girlfriend at the time, Gabriella, fell in love with it and kept saying to Hell, I love that track. You got to keep playing that track. You got to bring, you got to find Chris Corda and bring him here and release that track. So he he put out the vibe and uh, eventually word got to me. Took a while though. I was at some party somewhere in Boston and a, a total stranger was DJing. I at that point in my life, I was sort of in the habit of introducing myself to the DJ. You know, I was an aspiring artist or whatever, and still totally unknown. But that's the kind of thing you do when you're tr- when you're struggling in that business. And so I introduced myself, and he said, "Oh my God, you're Chris Corda! Holy crap! Give me your telephone number. I got to introduce you to DJ Hell. He's looking for you." I thought, "Wow, what a lot of shit! Who's that? You know, I had never heard of any of this, and so I thought it sounded pretty sketchy." But I gave him my phone number, and two days later, I got a call from DJ Hell saying something like, I mean, I exaggerate, but I don't want to do the accent. It wouldn't be wouldn't be right. But he said something like, we're going to make you a star in Germany. <laughs> and he was true to his word. So that's how Save the Planet, Kill Yourself got off the ground. But it was a pretty long, bitter process. I, you know, initially it was released on my own label and uh, it didn't go super well. I mean, it, it charted in Detroit and Chicago, but um, really not anywhere else. It didn't really find its audience until I was introduced to, to European audiences.
0: Mm. So you mentioned that it took a year to make that record, Um, I'd love to know a bit more about your approach to using sequences in music production, Um, it's been described as more like sculpting rather than traditional composition.
1: Well, um, I said that uh, in numerous interviews, I've I've stated that my process is more similar to sculpting, uh, and that's true now, but it wasn't true at the time. At the time when Save the Planet Cure's stuff was made, I was using a more conventional process. Yeah. Uh, I would, you know, like most composers, I had a keyboard, you know, electronic keyboard or whatever, in my little studio and some synthesizers and drum machines and stuff. And I would plonk around on the keyboard and play a few chords and try and find something that fit. You know, That's how most people write music. But that's not at all how I write music today. That's not... Um, how Koko Ojeji was made, and that's not how this new Apologize to the Future record was made either. So my process has changed. Pretty early on, after Save the... or around the same time that I was making Save the Planet of Yourself, I I really grasped Polymeter and what its implications were. And pretty soon after that, I was writing almost exclusively in Complex Polymeter. Not always. On the first record, maybe not. uh, Six Billion Humans Can't Be Wrong. Has some tracks that are just in straight four, including, for example, uh, save well save the planet Pierce Stuff, of course, but also uh, victim of leisure and a few others. But, but there are examples of complex polymeter on that first record too. Stencil is definitely complex polymeter. Uh, so is buy and buy more, and many others. So it's I had already rocked the idea, but. I didn't have the right tools for it. It was still a very painful process back then. But Save the Plan to Yourself didn't take a year because of that. It took a year because it took um, so hard to get the mix right. It's a very complex track. It has a lot of parts and uh, I'm, I'm no expert at audio engineering. No, no one will ever accuse me of that. And I had a bunch of pretty experienced help, but they mostly um, weren't getting it right. And so in the end we had to retain really professional help. I had to actually basically pay a guy to start over and remixed the whole thing from scratch using um, ADAT, which was pretty cutting edge technology at that time, where you can just put each instrument on its own its own tape. And uh, so he, he remixed the entire thing in 64 track or whatever it was. And he uh, was, was actually a great, interesting character. His name was David Frangioni. He'd, he'd worked for Aerosmith and bands like that, um, Paula Abdul and so on. Jan Hammer caught my attention. He's one of my great heroes. But so he had a studio in Arlington, and he uh, and he remixed the whole thing. And by the time he got done with it, it sounded amazing, truly professional. And he compressed it to within an inch of its life, and that's that's the mix that DJ Hell heard. It's just absolutely thunderous from the first note. But that kind of thing is not easy to arrange. You know, that, that's, that's skill. There's a lot of skill involved in audio engineering and I never claimed that that was my real skill. I'm not an audio engineer or a sound designer primarily, though I have done some of that work. Of course, I'm primarily a composer.
0: Um, you mentioned there about them kind of coming to an understanding of the implications of polymeter. Um, what were those implications that you understood about polymeter?
1: Oh, well, it's simple. I mean, it's like this. It's it's just an analogy, but pretty much all music that most people today have ever heard is in 4-4 and specifically the backbeat, right? That's the thing that goes boom, cha, boom, cha, right? With the snares on the two and the four. And is probably mostly in the major scale, or maybe even only in one major scale, or maybe even only in the pentatonic minor, most uh, disco tracks are just pentatonic minor, start to finish. I mean, I should probably explain what polymeter is for the record. Polymeter is basically really simple. It's it's really just when you have a bunch of things that are uh, different frequencies. And so... If one frequency is an exact integer multiple of the other, it won't be very interesting to watch, but if one frequency isn't an exact integer multiple of the other, and you have a bunch of them, then they'll engage in this fascinating kind of converging and diverging movement, not unlike the planets orbiting the Sun. So it's not the same thing as odd time. There is odd time tradition going back thousands of years. To this day, there's still an, an island in the Aegean Sea, part of Greece, uh, I believe I'm pronouncing it right, it's called Calamatos or Kalimat- I, I haven't found pronunciation exactly right, but anyway, the people who live on that island have been dancing in seven for thousands of years. They have a name for it. It's called the Kalamatios dance. And so if you say to a Greek band, hey play calamat, they're like, Okay, we'll play in seven now, and everybody dances in seven, and it's perfectly normal. That's just what they do. You know, so it's odd time is as old as the hills. Nothing new about that. It's absolutely normal in Indian classical music and in Arabic drumming and many other parts of the world, but polymeter not. And so why is that? Well, you know, we can speculate there actually hasn't been much academic research done on this and there should be. I would submit that the reason why polymeter uh, doesn't have a folk tradition is because it's so hard for humans to do. Essentially what you're asking people to do is you're asking them to do the opposite of what they normally do. Normally what people wanna do is get in phase and stay in phase. That's, you know, if you don't do that, right, your music teacher raps you on the knuckles. (laughs) Hey, you're losing time or you're gaining time or whatever. But uh, in polymeter, you do it intentionally. You're intentionally going out of phase with everything else at a precisely controlled rate. And then eventually you're going back into phase again at the same precisely controlled rate. Well, it's super unnatural. It's super hard to do for musicians. Maybe very highly classically trained musicians can do it if you write it all out. But your ordinary average musician just can't do it and so that means that that's why it didn't evolve right it didn't evolve because it's just not a thing people do and so it had to wait until the age of machines machines turn out to be amazingly good at this if there's one thing machines are really really good at it's maintaining precise phase relationships and you could do it back in the 90s you could do it in the 80s probably you know if you had two drum machines and you locked them into sync with each other which was not hard not impossible to do even in the 80s Uh, You could program one with a uh, pattern length of five and the other one with a pattern length of seven and bingo, you've got instant polymeter using Roland technology. So it wasn't that it was physically impossible to do. Steve Reich was demonstrating it in the late 60s and early 70s with with, uh, two tape recorders. He was pretty much the first person to demonstrate it in an academic context. Uh, so it was possible, but it just didn't really have any tradition behind it. And so people had no idea what to do with it. And the only examples they had of it were mostly Steve Rice music, which frankly is, um, you know, it's, it comes from an academic context. It's not necessarily all that pleasant or groovy. It sounds kind of square, you know, a little bit square, maybe for people who aren't into academic sounding classical music. And so people just, it, you know, they really didn't pay attention to it. It wasn't a thing. I'm hard pressed to name another Electronic music artist from the 90s who made use of polymeter. I was literally, you know, I had the feel to myself in the, the mid 1990s. I was the only, the only techno artist writing in complex polymeter. So, in fact, it's hard to find examples even in any kind of music except, you know, academic classical music. I found like a couple of tracks by Stereo Lab, and that was much, much later. I did a pretty exhaustive search and I didn't find it. And it wasn't because it was impossible. It's just because it's not a thing that people normally do. But it really does change everything. Uh, I think that polymeter, uh, the implication of polymeter is that it's a whole new approach to music. It really is. And so that's why I invested so much time and energy in exploring it. And I know a lot more about it now than I did in the 90s, for sure.
0: And you've used technology across this time to kind of understand it better and bring that into the way you make your music
1: yeah there was there was a big delay you know the problem was that the problems were mostly technological uh you know you asked about me being an engineer and stuff it, it's um the problem was that i really a lot there's a lot of luck involved in life and there was luck involved in this too i just happened to own at the time i was making save the planet yourself in the early 90s i and starting out down the road of electronic music i just happened to own a copy of dos cakewalk uh, which was fairly obscure at that time, but it was one of the only sequencers you could actually get, the MIDI sequencers you could actually get for DOS, which is what I happened to be running. Remember DOS, floppy disks, all this kind of thing. So that's prehistoric. But so the, one of the odd attributes of DOS Cakewalk was that you could set each track's length completely independently from the others. And so I basically just discovered one day that you could do amazing things with this, that you know probably... Uh, that this was had more to do with setting the course of my future music development than any other single thing was I you know woke up one day I'm like oh well what happens if we set all the links different and they're all um and all the links aren't aren't multiples of each other. Like in other words, if they were multiples of each other, then, you know, which is presumably what most people probably did, right? Maybe they had one thing that's in four, another thing that's in 16, another thing that's in 32 or whatever, then you don't get any benefit. But if you set one to five and one to 11 and one to 13, holy smokes, next thing you know, you've got this crazy thing that's evolving over days, you know, could be, or at least minutes, hours, long periods of time. The more prime numbers involved, the longer the repeat time gets. And So I, suddenly it dawned on me that this was you know, really radical. But the point was that um, after DOS became no longer a thing, there was a huge consolidation in the music industry around certain technologies for sequencing and essentially everything moved as soon as Windows became and Mac became you know, dominant. Everything became about timeline editing just as in video. And the problem with timeline editing is it screws this up Suddenly you don't have separate loop points for each track. And so if you look at the design of things like Logic and, and Ableton and so on, they make it super difficult to do what I do. And that this message was not lost on me. I thought, like, oh, wow, you know, this is not good. You know, I'm going to have to make my own thing. Uh, and so I did. I set about making my own software because, frankly, none of the commercial softwares were helping me. They were making it actively difficult to do what I wanted to do. And the problem with that, of course, is that maintaining your own software is hard work. And in the, in the 90s, it was really hard work. Basically, back that was back before we had uh, universal device drivers and stuff like that. So you literally had to write your software around a particular chunk of hardware. And God help you if you lose that piece of hardware. Maybe you better buy two or three of them, which is what I did. But so... Uh, you know, that, that whole paradigm just collapsed. And eventually it became clear that the, the only way forward, this was about 2003 now, where, where after Man of the Future, it became clear that th- there was no further gain that could be extracted from my DOS homegrown MIDI sequencer, no matter how awesome it was. I mean, I'd used it to make two albums and it was great for making Polymeter, but it was, you know, hopelessly obsolete and very limiting. And it was hurting my artistic creativity. And so the only way forward would be to somehow port that program to a modern operating system. Well, that turns out to be a really hard thing to do. And uh, so the, a lot of the reason that I stopped making music for a while is because I had to go learn the skills that I would need to do that. It took me years and years of, of you know, mostly working in the commercial sector. I worked in the 3D printing industry primarily for about 20 years. And uh, during that time, I learned about object-oriented programming and many other boring things, which are well, not boring to me, but they're boring to most people. And they Essentially, I learned the technological background skills that I would need. To accomplish this task. And finally, you know, I wrote a lot of open source software during that time, had some good practice runs. And by the time I sat down to actually write the, po- the new polymeter program in 2016, I was m- a much better programmer. And so I did a better job of it. And that was a good thing. Essentially, the new program, the new polymeter has vastly more degrees of freedom than the original one did. Degrees of freedom that I couldn't have imagined back in the 90s. And they are very exciting. And they've led to a whole new uh, area of music for me. I'm now making neoclassical music.
0: So during the process of making this updated software, um, were you did you have an album in mind? Or did that come later? And you just wanted to get the software nailed first?
1: No, a Koko uh co evolved, it, it, it totally co evolved. Essentially, a Koko Ujeiji is like a diary of the redevelopment of the polymeter sequencer. I got the easy stuff working first. I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in picking a low-hanging fruit, so I picked the low-hanging fruit, and uh, I think "Ala I was probably the first track. It's actually a really hard track, but so it only uses juxtaposition. But so anyway, yeah, um, that's that's the idea: is that you you build that you build that thing, and then suddenly you have new degrees of freedom, and you can approach music in a totally different way.
0: Mm. Uh, so, did you feel freedom when you were working on Apologize to the Future?
1: no uh, apologize to the future was kind of different I so Koko jaji I felt very free and kind of care, you know sort of carefree I guess is the word um, I love the beginnings of projects and I'm a very curious person I, I like I'm, I'm you know I like intellectual pursuits you know I, I don't I'm a big believer, I think it was the the, the major who said somewhere in Twin Peaks, achievement is its own reward. I'm a big believer in that. I I believe that the best thing that can happen to you in life is that you can get really curious about something and then learn everything there is to know about it or as much as you can learn about it. And that's that's the point. There isn't any other point to being alive. Uh, And so uh, I'm happy when I discover something new or when I start something new and I, I just want to get up every morning and learn everything I can about that thing. Uh, So that's more, you know, Koko Jeji is kind of a happy, uplifting album because of that. But um, Apologize to the Future comes from a completely different heredity. Uh, I I didn't write the music to start with. I wrote the lyrics and it took a long time. And in some cases, the lyrics predate the music by many months or even almost a year. Uh, So a thin layer of oily rock came first. And a thin layer of oily rock has a long history behind it. A thin layer of oily rock has started years before the album. Originally, it wasn't a song at all. It started as a a blog post, of all things, on a, on a blog that's actually pretty important in my history, important enough to mention it. The blog is called Meta Delusion. And Meta Delusion is interesting because it it is the home of the what I call the post-anti-human Church of Euthanasia. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but that's the truth. Uh, the Church of Euthanasia went through a pretty drastic kind of rejiggering in the aughts. Essentially, we made the transition from being mostly about misanthropy, mostly about hating humans for all the terrible stuff they've done, which we won't list exhaustively now. But um, we went from hating humans to actually kind of feeling sorry for them, because the difference is that hating them now is kind of pointlessly cruel since most of the terrible stuff that was um, going to happen to us if we didn't stop doing all those stupid things is now unavoidable and is going to happen anyway, even if we do stop doing them. And so increasingly, it's more about sort of grasping that humans are actually their, their own worst enemies, which is kind of tragic and awful. And that you know, includes all of us. And of course, the most awful injustice of all of it is that uh, you know, in this case, it's a little bit like some customers skipping out of the restaurant without paying. So you know, the present generations are going to get to die. <laughs> They'll be smugly dead and it'll be their uh, offspring, their children and grandchildren who'll be stuck paying the bill. Essentially, um, present generations have sent their own descendants to hell. And it's that realization uh, that I think really led to the post anti human church of euthanasia, pretty glum, you know, and so a thin layer of oily rock grew out of that. A thin layer of oily rock, essentially, um, was the the late stage of of my conversion to the view that what makes humanity interesting and worth saving is not just civilization, but specifically our scientific understanding of the universe. That actually, this is our great achievement. I mean, it's, we've made a lot of nifty art and stuff and I love art and I love outsider art, especially, and arguably I'm an outsider artist myself, so I'm biased, but but I, I, I think art is important and a big part of the human story, but the key element of the human story Is that we were like you know kind of dumb children in the neolithic right we weren't very smart we really understood almost nothing and today we understand almost you know almost everything we certainly can grasp right electrons and protons and neutrons and the cosmos and the the periodic table and amazing stuff like that and so human beings have really actually done very very well at explaining phenomena and the only way that we ever explain phenomena is through science that basically that's there's really two kinds of knowledge this is what the thin layer of oily rock is about it's about the idea that there's really two kinds of knowledge there's knowledge that consists of of predictive explanations of phenomena and then there's everything else Mm. and so the everything else could be divided broadly into things that try to make predictive explanations but are actually bullshit that's pseudoscience and then there's stuff that just doesn't um, try to explain phenomena at all like poetry or painting perhaps would be a better example so uh, in the first category of thing, of actual explanations of phenomena, science is absolutely preeminent. There is no competition for it. And so Thinly holy Rock basically starts with that. And the album, it's, it sets the focus of the album. the album. Almost the album's opening line is a reference to Einstein's famous quip that the moon is really out there. In other words, it's out there. His point being, it's out there whether you believe in it or not. That reality is real. This is sort of where the album starts. And so the album proceeded from that. It, a Thin layer of Oily Rock uh, became a slideshow that I presented in Berlin at Gallery Spectrum in 2018. And, uh, and it just grew and grew from there. I, I, I basically started giving a lot of time to persuading people that humanity's great achievement was its understanding of its environment. And that if we were going to save that, we, that, that Save the Planet Kill Yourself was actually kind of a, um, a Zen koan, if you will, or like a little bit of a, a paradox, because it's not actually the planet that needs saving. The planet's going to be fine. There's nothing wrong with the planet. You know, It's, the, it's civilization, especially human civilization, right, that needs saving. And so if we can't get our act together and we can't prioritize our long-term survival, then the future just doesn't include us. The planet goes on without us and it'll be planet of dolphins or... Planet of giant reptiles again, who knows? And whatever, whatever that is, it might evolve back into something like humans again, or it might not, but either way, that won't be our fault because we'll be gone. And so that's the realization that the album springs from is that it's an existentialist thing. You understand like Apologize to the Future is an existentialist album. It's a, it, it springs from the observation that humanity is alone in the universe and that the universe is hostile and fundamentally utterly indifferent to our fate. We, if we have meaning here on Earth, it's because we make it for ourselves. And if that meaning includes long-term survival, then all's good. But if that meaning turns out to be that we just want to have a really awesome party and screw the future, then that's what's going to happen. And there's no law against that. And it looks like, to me, like that that's kind of what's happened, actually. And that's, that's the real meaning of, uh, you know, the, the overshoot is about that. The track overshoot is exactly about that. You know, when the, rich, when the rich people are on their private islands and jetting around and living, you know, these, these uh, obscenely indulgent, decadent lives, they're serving as models for all the rest of us. So we're supposed to model ourselves on them? We're supposed to model ourselves on superficiality and triviality and accumulation of wealth and selfishness and narcissism? Well, could be. The point is that that's not a violation of the laws of physics. It's perfectly possible. It's one of our degrees of freedom. We can have a really awesome party for the few and everybody else can be screwed and then we can go extinct. And if that's the plan, if that's what we're really going to do, then we don't need to change anything. We've already got the right form of government for that. It's called neoliberalism. It's perfect. Everything is good. We just (laughs) need to keep doing it and we'll be gone. But if we don't want that, if we want something else, if we want um, the better angels of our nature to prevail, then we do need a different system. We better do it quickly because we're kind of running out of time.
0: to take away from spending time with your album?
1: Polymeter aside, um, the, the album is primarily a lyrical achievement from my point of view. I started down the road, after A Thin layer of Holy Rock was, was becoming music and not just politics, I started down the road of hip hop and rap and studied you know, those, those forms because I felt that they were the right model and, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming to be a rapper or anything like that. I'm just saying that I was really influenced by all of that. I, I, I probably, I was strongly influenced, for example, by Kate Tempest. When I saw Kate Tempest's uh, Europe is Lost, a, a kind of bulb went off over my head. I thought, okay, yeah. So actually, I, I, I could do something like that. that. That's kind of the right direction for all of this. That it, mm-hmm. um, this album contains more words than all of my previous output. Combined, if you added it all up, it, and and by a lot. Not only that, but it's all in rhyme, right? So that's really different. It's primarily a poetic or lyrical achievement, and so I would hope that it's understood that way. I mean, Groove Magazine, right? They they were kind of kidding around when they they called me the uh, the Bob Dylan of climate change. It, you know, somehow the not the, the the moniker stuck. I, I you know I'm not saying that that's true or you know it's It's not an egotistic thing. I'm just saying that it there's there's something to that that like. We need actually, we need a Bob Dylan of climate change. We need someone to make these issues real for people so that they feel it. You understand? So that it's not just some kind of armchair intellectual thing where you're like, Oh yeah, yeah, some super bad stuff's happening, but I try not to read the news actually, you know, because it's kinda depressing. You know, people think like, oh yeah, you know, we really ought to do something about all that stuff, but um you know, I, I got all this other stuff to do and I'm trying to get my new record released and you know, I'm gonna do like a live streaming and this and that and, we, and also we're busy partying. You know, everybody has their own reasons why they don't wanna make humanity's Im, Im, imminent implosion the main focus of their daily lives. I can understand that. I don't think it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy. I get up, but I get up every morning and I look myself in the mirror and I think that this is really happening. And whether it's luck or whether it's lucky or unlucky, I have a, a a ringside seat, right, with <laughs> the greatest the greatest crisis humanity's ever faced, and so I want people to feel that. I want them to listen to this album and feel that, and so and if they, it, to some extent, I meant it, right? You know, when I said that in somewhere in the I think it's an exit game, the one that starts "rich people are dumb." I hope they succumb in expensive cars or condos on Mars. You know, that's real. People should be angry. They should feel rage. We've been we've been lied to, we've been used, and above all, we've failed. And we we haven't failed in some abstract sense. We failed the future. And that's not a good thing. You know, that's a terrible thing to have done. It's bad enough to fail the present, but to fail the future is really really bad. And so I want people um, to feel that, I want them to think about that, and I want them to somehow connect with the issues that are being raised on this album. Yeah, they, might, they might just listen to it and say, "Like, oh yeah, that's some pretty groovy music" or whatever. But I, I don't—I don't think so. I personally feel that, that that it's long overdue, and I couldn't tell you why it hasn't happened sooner. I mean, that's some, that's for someone else to say.
0: Do you think that people might potentially be a little bit more perceptive to hearing the ideas that are presented on the album amid the context of this kind of backdrop of a global pandemic with coronavirus?
1: I would think so. I would hope so, because there's clear connections between the two. I mean, I was going to cite this um, actually earlier, but, and I can send you the citation, but um, there's clear you know, academic research and peer-reviewed papers and so on showing that not only is COVID connected to the climate crisis, but in fact was predicted long ago, was one of the predicted consequences of the climate crisis. Essentially, it's a simple thing to understand. It's that um, deforestation and mass extinction, on balance, tend to place humanity more in contact with species that are carrying pathogens lethal to humanity. That's not hard to understand. It's a. It's actually, yeah, it's been understood for decades that this would be very likely, that this would be one of the things we would see happen, along with sea level rise and, you know, increasing global temperature and acidification of the ocean and all of that. It's just another one of the things on that long, glum list, if you can get from the United Nations or whatever. It's. It is that um, essentially, it's that as we simplify and or and that's a polite word, as we homogenize ecosystems, and largely strip them of all their biological diversity we can expect the weeds to get the upper hand and when i say weeds i don't mean plants that we don't like i mean the tough opportunist species most of them are not our friends you know the obvious examples are rats and roaches and pigeons and so on but there's lots of others most of them are bugs and bacteria and they're not our friends and so to the extent that we create a hothouse world we're making life harder for ourselves definitely we will have more problems with our health. And so I don't, I don't see them as being separate issues. I, I actually see COVID as a big wake up call for humanity, you know, and a, lot, and a lot of people agree with me about that. I think there's a lot of perception, uh, especially uh, in climate change circles, that this is actually just what we needed, you know, it, it's some cold water in the face. It, help, it It's allowing people to do things that pre- they previously said were impossible. Oh, we could never, you know, cut back our air travel or we could never, you know, um, stop going on vacation all the time. Or we could never, you know, uh, stop driving and, or, or completely rejigger our, our economy so that everything is moved online. No, no, we couldn't do any of those things. Well, actually, we did do those things. We just did it in response to a, a much different threat. So that's fine. I think that COVID has opened the door for people to think about life in a different way and to, and to ask questions, pointed questions about what's really valuable and what we really want. And so I think that it's actually the right moment. I'm, actually, I'm not saying I'm glad that COVID's happened. Of course I'm not. It's made a lot of people die, and it's made a lot of people very miserable, and it's causing a depression for, in many countries, and that's terrible. But I think that it has it's like so many things. It has good and bad aspects. It has a silver lining, and the, one of the silver linings is that uh, it's helping us to reconceptualize modern life, which we desperately need to do. Now, whether that's enough is another question. I, that won't be for me to say. I, I don't, I'm not going to say that it's enough. I, in fact, there's precious little evidence for that. I, like I say somewhere in on all of this, you know, wake me up when the Keeling curve changes direction. And for, for those who are not up on, cl- on climate science, right, that's the measurement of the amount of CO2 that we're outputting into the, into the atmosphere each year. So it's been going up steadily since the 1958, and uh, it's, it shows no sign of leveling off. We're still outputting more CO2 each year than the year before. And so, you know, wake me up when that even plateaus. That'll be a sign that humanity is getting serious about its own future. And I'm sure Greta Thunberg would, would say something similar, right? In the end, it's all about CO2. That's the, that's the main method we have to make our future impossible is by continuing to add more CO2 to the atmosphere. Methane's not helping either. And there's lots of other terrible stuff we're doing that's not helping. But if we continue to add more and more CO2 to the atmosphere every year, then definitely we're going to 4 degrees C or whatever, and, or maybe worse, and then we're melting all the ice and melting all the permafrost. And after a certain point, it no longer matters what people do. You know, we could, we could wake up one day and say, hey, you know what? That was all a terrible idea, and so we're actually going to stop outputting any CO2, and maybe we're going to start sucking some out of the atmosphere, and it could still be too late. Once you start really melting the permafrost, then, yeah, then the Earth just has a certain inertia of its own. It's a little bit like the Titanic. The time to turn it around is not like just before you hit the iceberg, right? By then, you can, it's just not going to happen, right? So it's a really large, large, large thing, and the iceberg's really large too, and so it's, that's too late. You've got to turn it around like five minutes earlier. And so we have a similar situation. we got to turn around, and we got to turn around now. Actually, we should have turned around 30 years ago when the Church of Euthanasia was howling in the wilderness. But now would still be better than never And so I hope that the Church of Euthanasia's message will be received. I hope that the album will have an impact on people and they'll think, yeah, actually, we can change our lives and we have to change our lives because we don't want to send our children to hell.
0: Absolutely. Um, So to end, what would your advice be for um, being an environmentally friendly consumer of electronic music?
1: Wow. Well, that's a really tough question. I thought about that one a lot last night. That one kept me awake. I didn't get as much sleep as I should have, and it's partly because of that question. You know, I sort of don't know what to say. I, I mean, the problem, i, I got to be careful what I say. I almost am tempted to, like, plead the fifth, you know, because there's a deep problem. Yeah, There really is. I, I mean, I, I guess whatever. It's a free country, I, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, I shouldn't be afraid. I'm the reverend, right? I'm not supposed to be afraid. W- what I want to say is that the electronic music industry... Let's just say that it's invested in, shall we say, partying? Partying is a big part of what's um, being marketed. And uh, that's a problem, right? Because it's not just a problem because partying is superficial and because it leads to a fairly shallow set of values. Um, I would point to the fact that that the um, clubbing industry is primarily sustained by alcohol sales. Now, mind you, the clubbing industry is under attack at the moment. It's not polite to kick somebody when they're down, but you understand that like disco was derided even back in the 1970s when I was, you know, a teenager, right? (laughs) Disco was perceived by many people as being a step backwards in terms of musical variety and creativity, but it became the main American export culturally and it spread all over the world. And so now 40 years later, people are still doing that thing where it goes boom, cha, boom, cha, and everybody, you know, Essentially, like most, I can't tell you how many people I know who are in in the business of providing something like uh, uh, party facilitation. How do we call it that? It's a bit harsh, but you know what I think, I think you know what I mean. And so that's a problem, right? Because that's, you know, there's nothing that says that music has to be synonymous with partying. In fact, the music that I grew up listening to wasn't. Uh, The music I grew up listening to was extremely politically motivated. And a lot of uh, the lyrics were very powerful and about impressing social issues. And and many of the the songs that I remember from my childhood were transformational, you know, they changed me, they changed many other people, arguably in some way by changing all of us, they changed society. You know, go back and read Joni Mitchell's lyrics, right? And they're like, they're definitely not, you know, they're very deep. There's a lot of emotional and intellectual depth. And so I'm I'm frightened that during my lifetime, art in general has become more crass as culture has become more crass. I don't think that Trumpism you know, is some, a surprise to me. Some Trumpism is just the, the continuation of a long, glum kind of rollback of everything. I like to say I've lived through the age of rollback, You know, and it's been pretty bleak to watch. I haven't really enjoyed it much. And I've tried to fight against it in my own way. I've tried to contribute um, more depth to, and more uh, feeling to the intellectual and emotional conversations and artistic conversations that we're having. But it's not an easy thing to change the tide's going the other way, right? And so, uh, I, you know, that's part of the reason I listened to and was influenced by rap music before I, I made Apologize to the Future. I actually think that um, rap music and hip-hop, uh, to some extent, but especially the more political rap, is, uh, is one of the last bastions of real lyrical uh, uh, depth. You know, you may not necessarily be able to relate um, to the issues, depends on who you are and how you grew up, but But there's no question that it's uh, very complex lyrically and rhythmically. And there's a lot of thought that goes into making those rhymes. And some of them are are quite interesting. And they have a lot to say about society and where it's headed. It is possible still for music and art to be political and to uh, change society. And I want that. I just think that the electronic music industry has not in general been holding up its end of that bargain. And I don't, I can't, you know, I'm not going to point fingers and say that that's anyone's fault. I just think that that's a, a phenomenon that's occurred. There's been a kind of epidemic of superficiality and that too needs to change because I see them all as just different facets of the same problem. You know, I, I'm not kidding, right, in Overshoot when I say into the deep will soon descend, party until the bitter end. That's really about the present. It's about the present, viewed from the future, but it's still about the present.
0: Thanks for doing that, that thinking and going to those places because obviously not everyone wants to do that
1: oh my God, tell me about it. You know, and I don't want to do it either half the time. Like I, I mean, I guess what I could say as a postscript to all this is that this, this, was, this was a hard year. The year of Apologize to the Future was a hard year. Mm. And uh, I'm still recovering. And actually, it's painful to still have to talk about it. I would like nothing better than to go back to making neoclassical piano music and, you know, playing with my sequencer and... Exploring, exploring the vast ocean of of polymeter. And my my real love increasingly is atonal harmony. It's a wonderful thing. If you get a chance, you mm-hmm. could hear. Um, I just re- released an album on Mental Groove called Polymeter. It's going to have a sequel, a wonderful sequel that I love called Passion for Numbers. Boy, that sums up my life. <laughs> what a title, <laughs> Passion for Numbers. So true. But you know, it's a beautiful thing. It's it's um it's kind of neoclassical but jazz as well. It's kind of like stride piano, probably uh. You know, Fats Waller would have loved it if he could have heard it. it it's, and it's totally algorithmic music. It really is. It's revolutionary. It's algorithmic music where I'm using polymeter gen, to generate atonal harmony. I started seriously studying atonal harmony and uh, pitch class sets and all that good stuff. And it's wonderful. It's a fascinating world. And I would love to spend, you know, the rest of my life working on that. But the truth is that, you know, current events affect all of us, me included. And so, uh, you know, I, I might not want to spend my days talking about the climate crisis, but I feel that it's my responsibility to do it. It's like, 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 the, talking heads, like the talking heads said years ago, it's life during wartime. We all have to put our, our ambitions and our personal goals aside a little bit, or at least in the back seat, and focus on the matters at hand. And I think that that's a message that everyone should embrace. It's not, these are not ordinary times we're living through.
0: Yes, and I hope one of the ways that people can understand that is by taking in your album. So I hope that it reaches as many people as possible. And thank you for your work. And I just want you to know that you are appreciated.
1: Oh, that's very sweet, Martha. Thank you. No illusions.
0: Without hope. Seeing the truth. Through a telescope. Footsteps on the moon. It's really out there. Galaxy spin ignoring our prayers, fields of gravity, crushing space, waves and particles, glued into place, by the strong and the weak, the cold and the hot, radiating light, to a tiny dot.